All right, well, it is good be, to be back. Um, as many of you know, I've been preaching at a couple other three-strand churches the last couple weeks, and while it was nice to see what is going on at those churches and to get to know the people of the other churches that we're in, in partnership with, it is so good to be back. Um, I missed being here with you all. Um, as many of you know, we are in this network called Three Strand uh, in the North Puget Sound region that exists to strengthen local churches and make disciples. And practically, we do this in a variety of ways. We, we do it as the pastors and elders get together once or twice a month for encouragement and support and accountability. We do it through joint events that we do, um, like the men's retreat coming up, doing a joint men's retreat, and coming up in a couple weeks. Sign up if you haven't already. We do this through planting or replanting churches, like we're going to talk about today. And we do this through putting out some joint resources together, like the colorful booklets out on, on the table there, just to help equip and teach our churches. And then specifically this year, we decided to do a joint sermon series. So the last two weeks, like I said, I've been at a couple other three-strand churches, and you guys have had a couple other pastors here. And specifically, we wanted to do a series on church planting. And part of the reason we wanted to do this is because historically, as a network, we have had a big focus on church planting. We've felt that God has called us in part to help plant and replant churches. So the network was formed when Communion Church in Mount Vernon was planted. We've also planted Restoration Road Church in Snohomish. And then Communion planted Church planted us. We planted other and replanted other churches in there as well. But over the last three to four years, church planting has taken somewhat of a backseat as we've gone through the turmoil and needs of the last three to four years, just needing to focus on our own churches. But we don't want to lose the desire and the willingness and the readiness to plant churches as God leads. And so part of the reason that we're doing this series is just to invite you guys into that discussion, help our churches understand some of the convictions around that, and, under, and perhaps feel some of the, the passion and desire and willingness for that. So I get to finish off the series today, um, this three-week series, as a quick recap summary of the last two weeks. You, last week, Jim Fickert was here, and he preached on the Great Commission as a reason for why we should care about planting churches. Annalee just read the Great Commission in her prayer, but let me give it to you real quick. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, when we hear this, I think most of our tendency is to think of missionaries who go to far-off lands and preach the gospel, and that's certainly included in that. But at a more broader and fundamental level, the Great Commission is about planting churches, both far away and here. The, the charge that God has given his people is not to go out and just make individual converts and then say, good luck, hope you figure it out. It is to build churches. Um, we are to baptize those who come to faith in Jesus. This baptism symbolizes not only a vertical union with Christ, but also a horizontal union with God's people. There's a reason we don't baptize ourselves. 
We are also to see that the disciples, the converts, are taught and built up in the teachings of Jesus and Scripture. And so in other words, the, the, the charge, the goal, is to make lifelong disciples of Jesus, not just converts. And lifelong disciples are made and built through the local church, through local churches like this one. Just like many of you have either come to faith and been baptized in this church or another church and been built up in the faith as well through the church. And then two weeks ago, Patrick walked through what it might mean for us individually and us as a church to be a part of planting churches. What can I do, even now, just in my heart, in my priorities, in my thinking and planning, to be ready to support a church plant if God so leads? And today, my aim is to show you the important and necessary connection between church planting and really all of ministry, and really all of life, and God's sovereignty. I can personally attest that planting a church is a regular invitation to lean on and trust in the sovereignty of God. And this is true of all of life in the church, and this is true of all of life. And if you fail to lean on God's sovereignty and instead take things into your own hands, you end up with all sorts of problems. You can have a right understanding of the kingdom of God, like Jim talked about last week. You can be more than willing to go and, and do things and make sacrifices and all of this. But if you aren't ready to rest in the good sovereignty, the good providence of God, you will have a hard time. You probably won't make it, you probably will end up burnt out and bitter. And again, this isn't only true of church planting, and today we're, won't only be, all that we're looking at won't only be of church planting, be true of church planting. This has res relevance for many areas of our life. In fact, it's hard to think of a topic more relevant to everyday life than the relationship of God's rule over us and our daily lives and decisions and actions. And so to look at this today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, Patrick, two weeks ago, was in this same passage. We're going to focus on a different part uh, than he did. We're going to be in verses 4 through 9. Uh, this is one of my favorite texts. Many of you know that we went through 1 Corinthians just last year. But I could, we could easily spend four or five weeks just in these verses here. There is so much to unpack and is so relevant to, to us today. So let me read the passage. It's short. It's really just making one overall point. 1 Corinthians 3, starting at, chapter, uh, at verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, all, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now there's a universal principle here that we're going to unpack, but before we do that, we need to make sure we understand the context, the situation going on here in Corinth so that we don't misapply it. It's essentially what 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4 are all about. 
The Corinthians have a misplaced trust in mankind and what mankind is capable of. The Corinthians have a misplaced trust in mankind and what mankind is capable of. They think that the effectiveness of the gospel message, the effectiveness of churches and the mission of the church, depends on human efforts and human wisdom and human creativity and human personalities and abilities. We need gifted teachers and preachers and communicators and influencers. We need the best technology and techniques that can take this gospel message and make it work, make it powerful. The gospel needs a little PR help, they might say. As they were saying, we need people like Apollos with his sort of gifting, or we need people like Paul and his sort of gifting. I've used this illustration before, but when you buy a powered toy or a powered tool, it can come one of two ways, right? It can come with batteries or with batteries provided or batteries included. It'll tell you on the packaging. If you've ever been through a Christmas with kids, you know this very well. You either have happy kids because batteries were provided or you have unhappy kids because you don't have the batteries for, to power their toys. So what a relief it is when the batteries are already included. The power is supplied, built in. You don't need to go buy anything else. It just works as it is. Well, the gospel is kind of like that. The message of Christ and him crucified for sinners is kind of like that. Batteries supplied, power supplied. It doesn't only work if we can think up how to make it work if we can supply the right power and ingenuity and creativity. It has power built in as God works through it. As Paul writes earlier in 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross, that's his way of referring to the gospel, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he says, this gospel message is the power of God. Now, it's kind of an odd idea if you think about it, that there would be power in a spoken message, that the message of Christ crucified for sinners like you and me, reconciling Christ reconciling sinners to God, as it goes out and is proclaimed and it's heard and believed in, is powerful in and of itself. And not just powerful in that it might encourage you, convict you, inspire you, although it might, but powerful in that it changes you fundamentally, radically, from the inside out. The way that God calls and saves and changes people, the way that God builds his church, is through the word of the cross being proclaimed. As God's Spirit works through it and works in those who hear it. But the Corinthians, in various ways, thought that the gospel was batteries not included. It wasn't that they didn't believe the gospel message to be true, right? It wasn't that they didn't believe it was true, they just didn't think it was sufficient to accomplish God's ends. They didn't think it was a powerful and effective on its own. And so they thought it was on them to figure out how to make it work. We need to find an eloquent and charismatic and attractive and influential speaker to share it. We need to package it up to sound like the other philosophies of the day that people are obviously attracted to. 
Or maybe we need to tone down certain parts of it that appear offensive or silly or foolish. Perhaps if they lived in our day, they'd be looking to hire a marketing director for their church or the gospel. How can we get this thing to work? Now, up until this point in 1 Corinthians, Paul combats this error by highlighting the power of God working through the simple proclamation of the gospel. As Paul will say elsewhere, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Or as we read in Hebrews, the word of God is living and active. The word of God is living and active. There is power in it as it's proclaimed and heard and believed on. But here in chapter 3, Paul highlights a complementary truth. That human beings do not have within themselves the power to cause real spiritual growth. That human beings do not have within ourselves the power to cause real spiritual growth. That the individuals who proclaim the gospel, who plant and lead churches, who make disciples, all of us who belong to God, have no power or ability within ourselves to produce real spiritual fruit. We are vessels whom God may choose to work through. Look again at verses 6 and 7. This is kind of the the heart of the passage here and the the principle that we're going to apply. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Paul has a way of not really complimenting people. You are nothing, but only God who gives the growth. Now, Paul is not talking about agriculture here. This is a metaphor for ministry, for doing the work of God, for discipling one another, for sharing the gospel. And there is a simple yet extremely relevant principle here, and one that is just as true and needed today as it was then. So let me state the principle, and then we're going to draw a few implications from it. Here it is. All true spiritual growth, so we're talking conversions, we're talking growth into maturity and godly fruit, the building of healthy churches. All true spiritual growth is a sovereign work of God and cannot be manufactured by any human means or method. And yet, lest we think that we can just sit back and do nothing, God does work through means, and his ordinary means is the simple and clear teaching preaching, discussing, applying, and discipling of and through his word. Let me read that again. That's kind of a long statement there. All true spiritual growth is a sovereign work of God and cannot be manufactured by any human means or method. Unless we think that that means that we can just sit back and do nothing. No, God works through means, and his ordinary means is his word. As we hear it, as we believe it, as we live it out, as we apply it to one another, as we Communicate it. God causes the growth. Four implications of this. First, we should be careful not to trust any human abilities, wisdom, charisma, or technique to do what only God can do. So for the Corinthian, for the situation in Corinth, we know that Apollos was a gifted speaker. He's very persuasive. He could communicate smoothly, eloquently, powerfully in ways that were impressive to that day, where you had these Greek orators who would would go around. 
So Apollos was very impressive. And it seems Paul was not. And so there was the temptation to think that if this thing is really going to get off the ground, this gospel and this church, if we're going to really succeed, we need Apollos. We need to attach ourselves to Apollos a little bit more, and we're a little embarrassed by Paul. Maybe we should kind of hide him in the background. We need to find those with natural abilities to draw crowds, convincingly win arguments, and build large ministries. We need influencers. We need pastors who can really motivate people. Yeah, we want their theology to be good, and we want them to actually love people, but really, we want them to be able to draw crowds. And we think and talk like this today as well. And it can sound reasonable and justifiable. I mean, we want to draw people in, right? We want them to keep coming back. We want them to be excited. We, as Christians and as a church, we want to be known and influential in our community, right? I feel this. You feel this. So surely we need to select our pastors and our leaders and our decor and our website and our music and our weekday offerings, all with an eye to attracting and amping up and motivating people. But what so easily becomes wrapped up in this kind of thinking is a gradual eroding of trust in God and the gospel. We begin to think that we are responsible for growth and that we are capable of causing true spiritual growth. And slowly our confidence shifts from God and his word to our efforts and techniques. And I'm not just talking about churches and ministries out there. This is something that is daily present in our hearts no matter what our theology. Because we're sinful. And we want the credit. And we want to control things. I love what Ben Wright, a pastor in Texas, writes. He says, Beware of whatever draws people to your church that's not biblically essential. What's trendy now will change. The demographics of your community will shift. If you're not careful, your members will be a shrinking pool of people who are committed to a particular set of antiquated preferences because you never discipled them not to be. The better you nail a vibe that draws people, the harder you'll need to work to teach them that that's not what they need most. The more your church's expressions of worship lines up with what people instinctively like, the more you'll need to clarify that those non-essentials really are non-essential. In other words, there's nothing inherently wrong with having a certain vibe as a church. You, you can't really get around that. There's nothing inherently wrong with having a preacher who's naturally gifted or music that people like or a worship leader who's supremely talented or a building that's attractive. Those things may or may not be true of any church. We just have to be extremely careful that A, we are not putting our trust in that thing to do what only God can do. And B, that our churches are not coming to prioritize that thing over God's work through the gospel. Are we trusting in God to draw, convict, save, change, build up his people and his churches through his word? No matter what the outcome, no matter how fast or slow, no matter how it makes us feel, or do we trust in ourselves?
Second implication, the presence or lack of visible ministry fruit, the presence or lack of visible ministry fruit is not necessarily a determiner of faithfulness and not necessarily a reason to change course. The question we are asking is, how do we judge success as a church? Maybe you've never actually asked that question, but you've probably thought about it in one way or another. How are we to judge success as a church, in, as a church plant, as a ministry, in our personal ministry and discipleship? And our natural answer, whether we put it to words or not, tends to be things like growth in numbers, more people, more excitement, more passion, more giving, the increasing of our influence and power. But there are at least two reasons that these are insufficient answers. First of all, if it is only God who gives the growth, then a lack of results does not necessarily mean we are being unfaithful or doing something wrong. You may know that God called the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament to a very unfruitful ministry. He called him and he told him from the get-go, they're not, go preach to these people, they're not going to listen to you. And Jeremiah had to do this for a long time. And he was faithful and God was pleased in him. But there was very little fruit. Virtually no positive response or fruit. If God causes a growth, then we can't draw a straight line between results and faithfulness. Or lack of results and, well, we must be doing something wrong, so let's try to figure out how we can make this work. Secondly, these outward barometers of success can be manufactured through human means. You want to know how to draw a large crowd and get them really excited? Go to Vegas. They have it figured out. They do. Perhaps some of you have seen the, the new attraction in Vegas. It's called the Sphere. It's an 18,000 seat auditorium within a huge sphere that is a complete wraparound LED screen, has 4D physical effects, so you're actually feeling some of the effects of, of what you're, you're observing, and a whole bunch of other cutting-edge te technology that I have no idea what it means, so I'm not going to try to explain it. It's impressive, and it's going to draw a lot of people, and they're going to be really excited, and they're going to pay a lot of money, and it has nothing to do with the gospel has nothing to do with God's spirit at work, has nothing to do with God's word. You can draw huge crowds in various ways, and you can get them excited. Now, of course, we want to see people hear the word. We want to see many people come and give their lives to Jesus and be excited about the glory of God and join the church. But we want that to come from a real heart change that only God can do that cannot be manufactured, and we want it to be lasting. We don't want to merely give people a once-a-week camp high. They're excited on Sundays. They keep coming, but then they quickly forget about it the rest of their week and get on with their lives. This is a temptation that we all feel, especially those of us in ministry. We could go the Vegas route and appear very impressive, but not to God. And so we must be faithful to God's means, God's word proclaimed and lived out and believed upon within a church community where discipleship is happening and trust God with the results. Now, 
this point by itself might lead us to be a bit pessimistic and might lead us to stop expecting God to do mighty and miraculous things. There's a false humility that says something like, well, unlike those flashy megachurches, we're just content with slowness and simplicity. So we're just going to lower our expectations. Yeah, we'll just kind of sit around and not do much of anything. We're faithful. No. So third implication. The fact that only God gives the growth should give us confidence to act in bold and risky faithfulness. The fact that only God who gives the growth should give us confidence to act in bold and risky faithfulness. If our hope is ultimately in God to change hearts and draw people to himself and build his church, then we should be risk takers. We should be fervent and persistent prayers. We should be patient and we should do things that from a human perspective make little sense. God can change the hardest of hearts. We don't only go to those people who seem like likely candidates to be Christians. God can change the hardest of hearts. God can humble the proudest of people. God can heal the broken. And God can use the timid and weak and ineloquent, the soft-spoken, fearful, the uneducated, the simple, the ordinary, to plant churches, to make disciples, to be missionaries, to be pastors, elders, and leaders. And God can use churches that are simple and ordinary to do mighty things. I have a list of quotes on preaching in the back of my Bible, and this one from Charles Spurgeon always convicts me a bit. He says, So pray and so preach that if there are no conversions, you will be astonished, amazed, and brokenhearted. Look for the salvation of your hearers as much as the angel who will sound the last trump will look for the waking of the dead. Believe your own doctrine. Believe your own Savior. Believe in the Holy Ghost who dwells in you. For thus shall you see your heart's desire and God shall be glorified. What he's saying is, you're you're saying that this message is the power of God until salvation. Actually believe that. Believe that there's going to be converts and change And this is a good balance to what we said previously. While we don't control the results of ministry, evangelism, etc., we should have an expectation and longing for God to work mightily, to save lives, to build up believers into maturity, to build and plant churches. We should long for God to do this. We should pray fervently for God to do this and not justify our inaction to be like, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. Jesus said that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that is still true in the Stanwood, Camano, Arlington, Marysville area. Jesus is building his church. He is the one, as we are told, who is able to do measurably more, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. He tells us that his word will not return to him empty. God is sending out his word through us as a church, through you individually, even now, and it will accomplish his purposes. J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, writes, so far from inhibiting evangelism, faith in the sovereignty of God 
Faith in the sovereignty of God's government and grace is the only thing that can sustain it. For it is the only thing that can give us the resilience that we need if we are to evangelize boldly and persistently and not be daunted by temporary setbacks. And the truth is, evangelism, church planting, in this part of the country is daunting. You hear stories of church plants in the South and in Texas where after six months they have 2,000 people coming. We don't live in Texas. You hear of missionaries in Africa or working with, sorry, Paul does live in Texas part-time. Uh, you hear of missionaries in Africa or working with tribes in India, Indonesia, and they're seeing people coming to the faith and hearing the gospel for the first time, and within a couple of years, like whole tribes are coming to Jesus. It's different here. Many, if not most, are resistant to the church and to the gospel. Many, right or wrong, have negative views of the church. Many think that they've already heard all of that and understood it and are good without it. And many are too busy, too distracted, too comfortable for church. Some think that they're too sinful or messed up for the church. It's daunting. And then we think about ourselves and our weaknesses and inabilities and fears and insufficiencies, and it's daunting but only if it is up to us to cause the growth. Only if ultimately we rely on statistical probabilities, ah, oh, they're likely, demographic studies, and ourselves. But if our hope is in God who can change hearts and minds, if we know that it is God who causes the growth, then we have no excuse. We must get to work. And perhaps first we must get to work on the places in our hearts and minds that still fail to trust God to do what he has said. Fail to trust that there is power in the word. Fourth and final implication. The fact that only God causes the growth calls us to unity with fellow believers. The fact that only God causes the growth causes us calls us to unity with fellow believers. So look at verse 8. It says, He who plants and he who waters are one. So in this situation, Paul had planted the church in Corinth. Apollos had come along later and had really helped to build up the church with his uh, ability to speak persuasively and, and defend the faith. And if what some of the Corinthians thought was true, that mere men were responsible for spiritual growth, then perhaps it made sense for the church to divide. We have the Paul church and the Apollos church. Those of you who like the charismatic type of leadership, go with Apollos. Those of you who like the more subdued leadership, go with Paul. But if it is God who causes the growth and not man, then this division is out of line. Paul and Apollos have been gifted differently. God is working through them in different ways, using different abilities and ministries and their success looks different, but as long as they are preaching the same gospel, pointing to the same Lord and Savior, they have every reason to be unified and work together and rejoicing what God is doing through one another. And of course, this is just as relevant for us today. Um, so we can think about this within, within a church like this. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each of yours growth and 
discipleship and maturity will likely be the result of the quote-unquote watering and quote-unquote planting of many different individuals. Lots of people are going to be contributing to your salvation and growth in the faith as God uses them. There's no competition in this. It is only God who causes the growth. And we should rejoice in this. We shouldn't have, there's no sort of ownership in this. Well, that's my disciple. No, these are Jesus' disciples. God is using us. We can also think about this unity between gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches. We are not in competition with one another. God causes some growth here, some growth there, and we should rejoice in all of it. I don't remember who said it, but if we are praying for revival to break out and for God to work mightily, and then it happens, only it happens at the church down the road or across the street, we should be able to rejoice in it. Because going to God causes a growth. And even as we think about planting churches, uh, our goal is not merely to provide a more attractive, satisfying product in this target market and compete with the current options. It's not like we're planting a Trader Joe's in a Safeway community and hoping to convert everyone to a better way of shopping. Although that may be true. We're seeking to make disciples through the means God has given, working side by side with other gospel workers, and trusting the results to God. We pray that he works mightily, whether here, whether through us, or through others. All right, there's a lot in there. Let me wrap this up by connecting this specifically to church planting and also telling a little bit of our story and a little bit of the story of this church, which Anley did a little bit earlier. Uh, in 2013, Anley and I, an eighth-month-old Ezra, moved back to this area to begin the process of planting a church in Stanwood. We knew very little about planting a church. We just felt that God was calling us to this. We got plugged in at Communion Church in Mount Vernon, not knowing what the future was like. And it was a very hard and often discouraging three to four years. The process, be, process ended up being much slower than we thought. People didn't really come. We eventually had 10 to 12 people that met in our house, we still go to communion on Sundays, but over two years, that number didn't really grow. Eventually, we just decided to take a risk and launch as a church, which meant that we started meeting Sunday evenings in a church building and looked a little bit more like a church. This made it easier for people to join us, and slowly, we did have some more people come, but nothing rapid, and there were Sundays that were still very discouraging. And so at numerous points throughout the three and a half years leading up to launching the church, and then the three years or so of us becoming a self-sustaining church after that, we were continually faced with God asking us, will you trust me no matter the results? Will you trust me if things are slow and difficult and uncertain? Will you trust me when people are flaky and difficult, and sinful? Will your confidence still be in my word and not yourself? Will you be content with what I provide? Will you be content that I am with you and that I love you? And of course, these are not questions that only church planners are having to ask, answer. You are having to face these questions every day. As parents, 
as children, as spouses, as employers, as employees, as teachers, as neighbors. Whenever faithfulness doesn't produce the results we had hoped, whenever God is working too slow, whenever God's ways are not our ways, whenever sinful people get in our way, whenever our own sin gets in our way. And if we begin to lose our confidence in God's sovereignty or become discontent with what he is doing, then we will end up bitter and burnt out. It's not hard to see that there is a lot of bitterness and burnout in ministry, in life in general, but especially in ministry. And this happens when we don't trust God with the results. We want to control people. We want to control situations. We want to see immediate results. We want people to be without sin or suffering and to be easy and reasonable and understandable like us. Why can't everyone just be like us? We forget that only God causes the growth. Only God is responsible for and capable of causing true spiritual growth. He calls us, he uses us, and we should be bold and courageous and risky and patient and faithful in disciple-making, in loving and serving one another in the local church, in evangelism, in planting churches and doing the work of ministry. But the results are up to him. And so we're not talking about planting churches because we know what the outcome will be or because we have some magic formula that guarantees success. We're not talking about planting churches because this is an easy endeavor or because we've figured out the best way to plant churches or to do church. We want to talk about being willing to plant churches because God calls us to make disciples. And disciples are made through local churches like this one. And we want to see more local churches that are healthy and preaching the gospel, making disciples and glorifying God. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, pray that you would work through your word and you would cause the growth. Help us expose to us the ways that we doubt that to be true. Expose to us the ways where we are discontent with what you are doing and begin to take things into our own hands. Help us to trust you and in that to act boldly, fervently, faithfully and wisely in what you've called us to do. Even as we think about this church, help us to trust you. To be faithful to what you've called us to, to commit to one another, to speak the truth to one another, to seek to build up and encourage and disciple one another and trust you with the results. Even more specific, even getting into our families and into the the details of our daily life. Help us to trust you with the results. I pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Well, one temptation when we talk about church planting is to not only get excited about how God might use us out there down the road, but we may also begin downplaying how God might use us right here, right now. It's easy to get a kind of grass is greener mindset and begin neglecting what is right in front of us. And so I want to challenge you a bit. I don't know what our involvement or role in helping plant or replant a church looks like at this point.
But the best thing that you can do right now to be ready for that is to be a healthy, committed, growing member of this church. You have an opportunity right now to contribute to the health and vitality and godly growth of this church as you seek to plant and water and trust God with the growth that he's doing right here and right now. The healthier we are, the better positioned we are to send out and plant another church. The more members that we have doing the work of ministry in this church, the more people willing to take responsibility for the health of this church and the needs of this church, the more members willing to grow in their grasp of what a church is in the first place, and the more qualified men willing to take a step into pastor, being pastors and elders of this church, the more we can give to help serve and, and plant others. So that is my challenge to you. Let me read for our benediction from Ephesians 4. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that's the word for pastor, and teachers to equip the saints, which is you, which is the church, for the work of ministry, which is the whole work of the whole church, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue, uh, stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness into deceitful schemes. In other words, so that we are stability in faith and wisdom and knowledge. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, Christ as the head is ultimately responsible for the growth of the church. Amen. A um, few announcements real quick. Youth group tomorrow, women's study Thursday. Sign up for the men's retreat, which is in less than two weeks. I can sign up online. And then uh, for those that would like, we're going to uh, spend some time in prayer over Angie right after the service or soon after the service here today. Um, we'll do that in here. Feel free to stick around. Prayer, prayer all church prayer event on the first, which is in a f two and a half weeks. Okay. It's six. Six thirty, and we'll have childcare. We'll get more info out about that. Also, just wanted to highlight community groups are up and running again after the summer. So if you'd like to get in uh, into a community group, let us know. All right. Have a great day and week. I did. <laughs>